You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine hermeneutics, the principles that we use to properly interpret the Bible. Last time we discussed the Christocentric focus of the Bible, and we ended by starting to discuss covenants, and we mentioned two at that time, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Dr. Spencer, we don't use the word covenant much in our society today, but if we do, we use it to refer to a serious, formal agreement between people. How is the term being used here? In his book, Foundations of the Christian Faith, uh, James Boyce defines a covenant as, quote, a solemn promise confirmed by an oath or a sign. That's a fairly good brief definition, and it includes the important idea of an oath or a sign. But in his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem gives a better one. He says that, quote, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Now, why do you say that Grudem's definition is better? Because it makes three very important points explicit. First, it states that these covenants are unchangeable. We're told in Numbers 23, verse 19, that, quote, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? End quote. Secondly, Grudem says that these covenants are, quote, divinely imposed by God. We tend to think of agreements between equals. For example, you and I may enter into a contract, but only if we both agree. I have no right to impose terms on you, and you have no right to impose terms on me. Even our Declaration of Independence states that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. So this idea is firmly rooted in our culture. But as creator, God has every right to impose a legally binding agreement on us, his creatures. Thirdly, Grudem notes that these covenants stipulate the conditions of our relationship to God. That doesn't go along with the modern idea that my relationship with God is personal, and I get to relate to Him in whatever way I see fit. No, it doesn't go along with that idea at all, because that idea is profoundly unbiblical. (laughs) In fact, let me burst our egotistical, self-focused bubbles a little further and point out that God's relationship to each of us, while certainly personal, is not primarily with us as individuals. What do you mean by that? I mean that God relates to us as members of a group, and the Bible speaks, ultimately, about only two groups of people, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, Paul wrote that, quote, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, unquote. This speaks of those two groups and implicitly speaks about the two main covenants which we're discussing. How so? Well, the covenant of works was established by God with Adam in the Garden of Eden prior to his fall. And while we aren't told everything about this covenant, we do know the most important stipulation in the covenant. Adam was forbidden to eat of a particular tree, which God called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the punishment for violating this prohibition was death. We also know that Adam was acting as the representative of the entire human race at that point. Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 12, that, quote, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned, unquote. Theologians sometimes refer to Adam as the federal head of the covenant of works. Why is Adam called the federal head? 
The word federal in this context just means having to do with an agreement whereby a collection of people is viewed as a whole in some way. It's similar to the use of the term in our country. We have the federal government, which is over the group of 50 states. This whole idea of viewing the Bible in terms of God's covenants with man is often called covenant theology, but has also been called federal theology, especially in the past. And Adam is called our federal head because he represented all of mankind in this covenant. That's right. All of mankind was represented by our first father, Adam. We were viewed by God not just, or even primarily, as individuals, but as members of this class, and Adam was our head. I can imagine many of our listeners balking at this point and saying that it isn't fair for them to be judged because of Adam's sin. I had that exact objection the first time I heard this, which was before I was saved. But if you object to Adam being your representative, then you have a serious problem because the only way to be saved is to have Jesus Christ as your representative. He is the federal head of the covenant of grace. Going back to Romans 5, which we quoted from a minute ago, Paul wrote in verses 15 and 16 that, quote, The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. All right, I like that representation. So do I. But you really can't consistently like the one and reject the other. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter at all what I like or don't like, nor does it matter what you like or don't like. God is the creator, and this is how he has chosen to govern his creation. I have no real say in the matter. But we must also note that I cannot accuse God of dealing with me unjustly because Adam represented me when he sinned. Perhaps I would have some argument if I myself had never sinned, but there's no one who can make that claim. Now, of course, I also inherited my sinful nature from Adam, but the blame belongs to him for that, not God. You're not helping my self-esteem by saying that what I like doesn't matter. I could say I'm sorry about that, but it wouldn't be true. The reality is that what we like has nothing to do with what actually exists. We've talked about this before, but the fact that I don't like getting sick or getting old has nothing to do with the reality. Getting back to hermeneutics, though, there are several important things to know about these two main covenants, and which are extremely helpful in developing a comprehensive understanding of the Bible as a whole and of God's way of dealing with human beings. We've already seen that God deals with us as members of a group. We are either in Adam, which means we are subject to the curse of death in its full eternal sense, or we are in Christ, which means that we have been redeemed and are no longer subject to that curse. I think that once you understand this structure, it really helps to organize the Bible's teaching in our minds. It also shows the extreme importance of the literal truth of Adam and Eve and the fall. It does make the importance of that point clear. God's whole plan of creation, fall, and redemption comes into clearer focus, and it all redounds to His glory, which is the purpose of creation. But there's a lot more that can be said. The covenant of works is called the covenant of works because Adam was judged based on his own works. If he obeyed, most theologians conclude that he would have at some point been confirmed in his obedience and granted the reward of eternal life. In Genesis 3 verse 22, we're told of another tree, the tree of life, which grants eternal life, and from which man is to be kept as a consequence of his sin. 
John Murray speaks about this in his wonderful chapter on the Adamic administration in Volume 2 of his Collected Works. It's interesting that Murray doesn't use the term covenant of works. He objects to the term for two reasons. First, it doesn't have all the marks of a true covenant, and secondly, the name can be misleading. The contrast between works and grace can be seen to imply that the first covenant was not gracious, when it most certainly was. And the contrast can also be seen to imply that works are not part of the second covenant, when they definitely are. The first covenant was, in fact, entirely gracious. God gave Adam life, he had fellowship with him, and he gave him the ability to obey. God didn't owe Adam eternal life or anything else, so the entire covenant was gracious. And while works are not the basis of our salvation in the covenant of grace, they are nonetheless essential as proof that we have been saved. In Beakey and Jones' book on Puritan theology, we read that, quote, works function antecedently to, that means before, the reward in the first covenant, whereas works follow the reward, which is justification, in the second covenant. As James says in James 2, verse 26, faith without deeds is dead. You can claim to be a Christian, but if you don't live like one, your claim has no validity. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Exactly. And the new creation cannot look exactly the same as the old one. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 2.10 that, quote, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But, of course, these so-called good works are the result of grace. Absolutely. In the covenant of grace, we are united to Jesus Christ, our federal head, by faith. And that faith is one necessary result of the gracious gift of new birth or regeneration, but it isn't the only necessary result. The fact that our nature has been changed means that our behavior will also necessarily change. Prior to being born again, we were in Adam and spiritually dead, subject to eternal death in hell. We were also unable to do anything pleasing to God. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 5, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And praise God, the gospel is so indescribably gracious. To think that God loved sinners enough to send Jesus Christ to be the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for our sins, that just blows my mind. It does mine as well. And understanding the covenants gives us a much deeper appreciation for what God has done. Before he created the universe, God looked at this mass of fallen humanity in his mind's eye, so to speak, all of these sinful men and women who were in Adam, and he freely chose to save some of them by uniting them to Christ through faith. As we're told in Ephesians 1, 4-6, God, quote, "...chose us in Him, meaning Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves." That is amazing. Do you have anything else that you want to say about covenants? Yes, we've only talked about the two major covenants, but there are many covenants mentioned in the Bible. There's a covenant made with Abraham, there's a covenant made with Noah, 
and there's a covenant made with Moses, just to name a few. The covenant made with Moses is also called the Sinaitic Covenant because God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. And that Sinaitic Covenant plays a prominent role in the New Testament. It certainly does. It's called the Old Covenant in 2 Corinthians 3.14, and it's called the First Covenant in the book of Hebrews. We spoke last time about the fact that Hebrews presents Christ as the permanent high priest. In Hebrews 8, we read about the earthly priests who serve in the temple here on earth, And then in verses 6 and 7, we're told that, quote, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. That always sounds strange when you first read it, to say that there's something wrong with the first covenant, even though it was established by God, who's perfect. It can be troublesome when you first read that, for sure. But if you go on and read the next verse, verse 8, we're told, quote, but God found fault with the people, unquote. So we immediately see that the fault was not really with the covenant itself. It was with one of the parties to the covenant, the people. In other words, us. The writer of Hebrews goes on to quote from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. We read in the rest of Hebrews 8, verse 8, quote, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this is the new covenant that Jesus spoke about at the Last Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25, we read that Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Yeah, that's right. And this covenant is better than the old one because it takes care of our sin problem. We were the problem with the Old Covenant because in our sinful nature, we couldn't keep the law. There's nothing wrong with the law, as Paul tells us in Romans 7 verse 12. The problem is with us. The writer of Hebrews then continues with his quote from Jeremiah. In Hebrews 8 verse 9, we read that this new covenant, quote, will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Which again shows us some of the typology of the Old Testament history, as we've noted before. The people of God were in slavery to sin in Egypt, and God let them out of that slavery under the Old Covenant. But now in the New Covenant, he leads his people out of their slavery to sin. We can certainly see how this knowledge of the covenants helps us to get a more complete picture of God's work throughout history. It's a wonderful tool to help us understand the Bible better, which ought always to be our goal. We should study the Bible so that we have a better understanding of who God is and what He requires of us. It should be our desire to worship Him properly and to obey Him carefully. Uh, That verse you just read from Hebrews uh, chapter 8 and verse 9 also gives us an implicit warning. God said that because the people did not remain faithful to His covenant, He turned away from them. He certainly did, and we have all of the Old Testament history, including the Babylonian captivity, to show us the consequences. But that same history shows us over and over again how patient and faithful God is. What people don't like to hear is that God is not just faithful to keep his promises. He is also faithful to keep his threats. The vast majority of God's promises to us are conditional. He will bless us if we are faithful to keep his commands. It's true that his election is unconditional, but his blessings are generally conditional. 
There is a very pernicious and completely unbiblical teaching that is common in evangelical circles today that God's love for me is a one-way love, by which it's meant that he loves me independently of whether or not I love or obey him. And that is complete nonsense, biblically. We don't have time to go into that in detail right now, but as we just noted, if we have been born again, our nature has been changed. There's a desire to please God by keeping his commands. Our works are not meritorious, but as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, quote, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, we've gotten off topic a bit, but in a very good way. But we're out of time, so I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. And I look forward to continuing our discussion of hermeneutics next time. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine how to properly understand the Bible. We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.